Toledo. Imagine this. It's November 20th, 1979, Makkah, Saudi Arabia. It's a new year in the Hijri calendar. You wake up early in the morning to get to the Haram, the Grand Mosque. You arrive a little before Fajr prayer. You get as close as you can to the Kaaba, and you pray your Sunnah prayers. In preparation, of course, for the main Fajr prayer. The Imam this morning, none other than Sheikh Muhammad al-Subail. It's a fairly busy morning in the mosque, at least 50,000 worshippers. Al-Sabai leads prayer and then positions himself to conduct the janaza, the funeral prayer, just behind the coffins brought in that morning. You consider all those close ones who have passed away in your life. There's something ironically soothing about praying the funeral prayer here in Mecca, even if it is for our deceased strangers. As you're praying, you hear some rustling in the background. You later realize it was the sound of the doors slamming shut and being chained. While this has taken your attention, Sheikh al-Subail is pushed aside by a group of men who claim the microphone. At the same time, other men open the coffins. To your absolute disbelief, the men start pulling out weapons, specifically Russian Kalashnikovs, automatic weapons. There were no corpses that morning. The weapons in the coffins were to be used in one of the most horrific sieges in Muslim history. The guards, armed only with wooden batons, initially prepare to pounce on the men, but they quickly stand back once they see the weapons. The man on the mic starts reciting a hadith, claiming that on the turn of the Islamic century, he has found the reviver of the religion, the Mahdi. And just like that, in the holy sanctuary of Mecca, a place where even plants are treated with the utmost of respect. A two-week bloodbath at the footsteps of the Kaaba has begun. From Toledo Society, I'm Professor Saeed Khan, and this is 1400 OMG, your guide to what the hell happened in modern Muslim history. In this series, we look into the key events in the Muslim world over the past two centuries and dig deep into some of the root causes of the situation many find themselves in today. There's been a lot of noise recently across Saudi Arabia and the Muslim world about the siege of 1979. Many are calling for Saudi Arabia to return to the Muslim traditions before that year. Today's episode marks the beginning of a two-part series that delves into those 1979 events that shocked the Muslim world. In episode one, we look into the background and context of the 1979 siege and the actual events of the siege itself. We'll leave the end of the siege and its ramifications for episode two. As you listen to this episode, put yourself in the position of the innocent students from Islamic universities across Saudi Arabia who were approached several times to join the rebels. Put yourself also in the position of the Islamic scholars who were approached by the rebels to endorse their plan. Finally, put yourself in the position of the Saudi authorities and religious establishment who have to juggle between the sanctity of the mosque and the need to use force to protect it. Before we jump into the siege, it's important to consider the context, which actually starts in Iran. 
1979 Iranian Islamic Revolution, which brings an end to 2,500 years of monarchy, means that world attention is on Iran. The last Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, leaves Iran on January 16, 1979, escaping the populist revolt that had been underway for more than a year. On February 1, 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini, the spiritual leader of the revolution, returns from exile in Paris, ushering in a new era of quasi-theocratic rule. Khomeini promotes a new form of governance, Velaytul Faqih, that is ruled by the jurist. This is unprecedented in Islam, especially in Shia Islam, the dominant sectarian expression within Iran. Khomeini is militantly anti-West, which he contends has corrupted Iranian society with the complicity of the Shah, whom he regards to be nothing more than a puppet of Western regimes. With the loss of a key strategic ally, the United States is concerned about regional stability in the Persian Gulf. The United States is also anxious about the prospect of the Soviet Union exploiting the instability in Iran to enter and to exert its influence in the Gulf, an area that had been firmly within Western control during the Cold War. The United States is also fearful that Khomeini's revolutionary rhetoric will embolden and empower Shia minority communities elsewhere. Of particular concern is eastern Saudi Arabia, the key petroleum terminal for the kingdom, as well as events in the civil war-torn Lebanon. American fears of Iran are facilitated, in large part, by the Saudis, who are worried that Khomeini's influence among Shia will spread into their country. However, the regime also sees an opportunity to become the sole remaining strategic ally for Washington in the region. Enter Juhayman al-Otaybi, a young student who accuses the Saudis of cozying up to the West. Juhayman al-Otaybi comes from a prominent family from the Najd province of Saudi Arabia. His grandfather had been a contemporary of Abdulaziz al-Saud, the founder of the kingdom. He'd accompanied al-Saud on horseback during raids across the Arabian Peninsula in the 1920s. Juhayman has also been a student of Sheikh Abdulaziz bin Baz, the highest-ranking cleric in the kingdom. He's been a corporal in the Saudi National Guard, common and popular vocation for many Bedouins, and he is a fundamentalist preacher who has growing appeal due to his charisma and populist message. But Juhayman has become increasingly disillusioned with the Saudi royal family. His main accusations are that the family are lax and hypocritical about their Islam. He also publicly accuses the royal family of being puppets of foreign interests. Just a quick note regarding Toledo Society. 1400 OMG is one podcast in a network of podcasts called Toledo Society. To find out more, visit ToledoSociety.com. Juhayman and his followers believe that a redeemer, or mujaddid, is divinely sent to the Muslim community at the start of every Islamic century. November the 20th, 1979 is not only the beginning of a new year in the Muslim calendar, it is also the first day of the 15th century in Islam. Some Muslims believe that this is a sign of the arrival of the Mahdi himself. The Redeemer will signal the imminent arrival of the Day of Judgment 
and will help the believers battle the evil in the end times. Juhayman promotes the idea that his brother-in-law, Muhammad Abdullah al-Kahtani, is the Mahdi. Al-Kahtani loosely matches the description of what the Mahdi looks like, according to Islamic sources. He's a student of knowledge from Imam Muhammad bin Saud University in Riyadh, in fact. He is charismatic and has an excellent command of religious texts and sources. Juhayman and his brother-in-law actually approach bin Baz, whom they've known from his days as the dean of the Islamic University of Medina. They approach him about Al-Kahtani being the Mahdi, but he shrugs them off as overzealous students. They decide their way to promote the arrival of the Mahdi is to take over the Grand Mosque in Mecca. That way, the pilgrims who are already present from all across the world would spread the news of the Mahdi's arrival. The siege began after Fajr prayers on the morning of November the 20th, 1979, the first day of Muharram, New Year's Day in the Islamic calendar. Around 50,000 pilgrims were within the precinct of the Grand Mosque that morning. For weeks before the siege, loyalists who work within the precinct have allowed trucks to smuggle supplies and munitions, even gas masks, through the intricate underground system of tunnels of the Haram. Juhayman and his followers convinced them that they were to spend several days in Ittikaf, that is religious seclusion, in the underground bunkers in the Quran school within the Haram. The Haram is under renovation by the Saudi Bin Laden group, mind you, which means there are trucks coming and going at will. After Fajr prayers are concluded, insurgents carrying guns beneath their robes reveal themselves in front of the Kaaba. Other insurgents, disguised as mourners bringing in the deceased for funeral prayers, open the coffins to reveal more weapons. After the initial confusion and shock within the Haram, many pilgrims run toward the various gates of the Haram. The insurgents lock the gates and secure these exit points, barring people from leaving. The security forces on duty have little more than wooden sticks to serve as crowd control for overzealous pilgrims. They're easily overpowered by the insurgents and, according to some sources, two guards are killed. Insurgents take positions in the minarets and in other strategically located areas to act as snipers against people trying to escape. They're also positioned in order to prevent security forces from entering the precinct. The insurgents are extremely well trained because many have served in the Saudi National Guard and several wealthy Saudis who are sympathetic to their cause have donated money and supplies to them. The chief imam of the Grand Mosque, Sheikh Mohammed al-Subail, manages to escape incognito with a group of Indonesian pilgrims. The insurgents, interestingly, only wanted Arabic-speaking hostages so that they could understand their proclamations and declarations. Now what are those declarations? Well, the insurgents announce that the Mahdi has arrived. They gather in the spot between the Maqam Ibrahim and the Hajar Ismail near the Kaaba, the region where, according to Islamic tradition, the Mahdi would appear. Juhayman declares that his brother-in-law, Muhammad Abdullah, is the Mahdi and demands that people come forward to give allegiance to him. Hundreds of pilgrims are trapped inside the precinct with the insurgents. Despite the high visibility and prominence of the Grand Mosque, the Saudi response to the insurgency is delayed for several reasons. First, they're caught completely off guard by the siege. Second, the highest ranking members of the Saudi royal family, 
including Crown Prince Fahad, are overseas at a conference as the siege is underway. Third, the Saudis tend to conceal potentially embarrassing information as a defense mechanism and as an effort to guard their public image. This even involves press censorship, denial, and strict control over any messaging. When they do act, the Saudis declare a complete shutdown of communications. This shutdown includes telephone lines into and out of the kingdom, as well as a complete and total media blackout. Rumors and suspicions start to grow as pilgrims are denied access to the Haram, an unprecedented situation, a place that never shuts down. The Friday sermon from the Haram is normally broadcast well across the Muslim world, but this does not occur three days after the initial siege and is perceived as being highly unusual, especially in the absence of any official explanation by the Saudis. Officials at the US consulate in Jeddah discover what was occurring in Mecca by way of a relative of one of the diplomats who flies helicopters for the Saudi civil defense. The pilot had access to Mecca because he converts to Islam upon each entry to Mecca and then reverts after his assignment has concluded. The pilot is able to fly over the Haram and confirm that it is indeed under siege. The US diplomat in Jeddah is then able to use secure lines that are still open and available to notify the State Department in Washington as well as President Carter that Mecca is under siege. Some senior officials in the Carter administration are initially convinced that Khomeini and the Iranians are behind the siege. The inability to confirm the actual account, given the Saudis' reluctance to disclose the reality of the situation, creates an ideal space for rumors to swirl and circulate. Due in large part to the incompetent management of information release, rumors and conspiracy theories start to emerge across the Muslim world. In Pakistan, a rumor spreads that the United States is behind the siege of the Grand Mosque, which leads to the storming of the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, ironically mirroring the siege of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Hundreds of religiously motivated protesters stormed the embassy, setting it ablaze. Embassy officials actually have to hide in a vault until the demonstrators disperse at night, allowing them, the 140 American officials, to escape with the aid of U.S. Marines. The conspiracy theory of U.S. involvement doesn't subside, even when the true story is released. In 1981, Turkish extremist Mehmet Ali Aja attempts to assassinate Pope John Paul II in Rome because he still believes that the Christian world had been behind the attack on the Grand Mosque. Other rumors persisted that the siege is orchestrated by Khomeini and Iran as a Shia effort to capture the Holy Mosque. As the rumors begin making their rounds, the Meccan police detail forces its way into the mosque through the Marwa gate, only to be mowed down by guns. The Saudi authorities have sought and received a religious fatwa to use force in the Haram against the insurgents. Over the next two weeks, the Saudi authorities and the insurgents fight to the death at the very footsteps of the Kaaba. That's all for this episode of 1400 OMG. In the next episode, we dive deep into how the Saudis contain the situation with the help of a fatwa and the support of the French. We will also look into the ramifications of the siege for the decades that followed. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to let us know your thoughts. If you'd like to reach out to us, visit ToledoSociety.com.